New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mendrinos. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. We have got a great guest today. Uh, radio for over 30 years. Um, his own Broadway show. Uh, you've seen specials that he designs and tours with. Um, he's done everything anybody could ever possibly want to do in stand-up. And he's going to come in and speak to us today about his process, his experiences, and uh, and what makes him happy in stand-up. Our guest today is Mr. Rob Bartlett. All right, so this one's going to be fun for me because uh, when, when I started as a wee little lad in uh, showbiz, this gentleman was already an icon, and uh, I got to work with you really early in my career, and, you know, I thought I was all big and badass, and I just sat down and watched you talk for an hour and 15 minutes and realized I needed to learn how to do this. Um, Mr. Rob Bartlett is joining me, and uh, you probably know Rob from a lot of places, most notably the radio, and we'll get into that. But I want to talk about your live shows, because they are like nothing I've ever seen with any other stand-up. I mean, you know, I've gone to some of your spectaculars when, when you were doing the spectaculars, when you were attached to a radio show, and that was, that's a show. That is a show. You've always put in that, that showbiz feel to what you're doing. And what, what makes you shape a show like that when it's clearly the audience would have been just as happy watching you do an hour and 15 of straight stand-up? I just always thought that, you know, excess, you know, is, is the friend of, of, of comedy. I mean, anything is worth doing is worth doing like way over the top and more than it is needed as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when I did stand-up, I was never happy unless I could humble an audience into submission, you know, during my set. Um, I'd seen Richard Pryor uh, on his, on the tour that he did for the first movie, the first, uh, uh, the, the first live movie that he had done. Mm -hmm. And he followed... Patty LaBelle, whose mother had passed the night before. And so she was just one of the most amazing performances I've seen of anything by anybody ever. And I thought to myself, you know, there's an intermission. And this was like a late show. Probably, I think, an added show. It was either a second or third show. And it was at the city center, I believe. And... Um, I thought to myself, this guy, he's going to have to set his dick on fire, not knowing what was going to eventually happen. Um, but I thought he was going to have to do that to follow her because she was, I mean, people were out of their chairs, like reaching for the stage. I mean, she was just the emotion. It was just incredible. Intermission um, starts, and then before the intermission is even over, before the house lights are down, they just drop that, you know, that caricature of him. You know, they they fly it in, and he just walks out on stage, no introduction. The house lights aren't even down. And he, for an hour and a half, was here at this level, no let up, and he pummeled the audience. So I thought, you know what, that's a, that's the way I want to do it. I don't want to give people a chance to get catch their breath. Um, I got a call from uh, Bill Sheff once 
uh, he and his, his wife, the late great uh, Adrian. Adrian Walsh, said, uh, we were just having a discussion. We're, we're having, we can't, we can't seem to remember if this is a story about you or not. Um, was it you who was on stage and had somebody laugh so hard they actually threw up on the table? <laughs> and I said, yeah, killed <laughs> his charge. <laughs> so it's just like, anyway, I just, I would always just go over the top. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of show business in general, show business history. And I'm a big fan of the Rat Pack. I used to love to watch some of that stuff. Um, you know, there's a, a recording of uh, a version they did for charity, I think in St. Louis. It wasn't actually in, in Vegas. The one with Carson hosting? I'm sorry? The one with Carson hosting? I think it, that's the one that Carson hosted. It was a benefit, yeah. I think. And... I thought to myself, this was when show business had class. This is when people, you know, wore tuxedos on stage. You know, it's like when you went out to see this at a nightclub, you know, you got all dressed up. I mean, you know, it was like there was something about it, you know, a style to it. And it was just nonstop entertainment. There was music. There was dancing. There was comedy. There was ad-libbing. There was just, you know, hijinks on stage. Um which was kind of like the stuff we used to do at the East Side in the early days, you know? There'd be a regular show, but like the show around the show with everybody in the audience, other comics, just heckling and stuff we used to do impromptu on stage, that was more than half the show, you know? So when I started to do these spectaculars, I thought, you know, I've always liked to have music in my act, pretty much for as long as I can remember, closed with some kind of a musical thing. I used to do a character, um, it was a... a four-year-old rock star, Timmy, Timmy in the top tones. And I did a uh, song parody to Johnny B. Good called Timmy B. Good, which is a story about him being um, really awful for a babysitter and then catching her having sex with her boyfriend on the couch and uh, using that to blackmail her and not telling his parents that he had been bad. Um, and then I started doing, uh, I started my, my Beatle bit at the end where I would do She Loves You and kind of, repeating what I used to do when I was a kid, basically just lip syncing and pantomiming all four separate Beatles doing She Loves You, which then kind of morphed into an original song that uh, Gary Grant and I wrote called Sounds Like She Loves You, because we didn't want to get sued. And it was like <laughs> a speech of all the great Beatle licks and whatnot. And that was in the, the Broadway show I, I wrote, uh, More to Love, Big Fat Comedy. And... Um, I, I would do that, but I thought, you know, there's got to be more to this. You know, there's got to be something I wanted to be, I wanted to have style, you know. So we, we started doing this one man kind of thing at uh, Club 1407, which was yep. a, a luncheon club for the Garment District uh, in Midtown. I actually opened for you there. Yes, yes. yes <laughs> many, many months ago. Yes, you did. And we got to, to take it over on, on Friday and Saturday nights and we four-walled it. And I started woodshedding this kind of one-man concept. And we had comics. I had a piano player, Carol Gowasser, who, you know, kind of provided a little bit of a, a soundtrack underneath the characters I was doing because my act has always been basically characters. And uh, um, so I thought, you know, let me let me try having more than just a stand-up open for me. Let me add some music to it. And so 
we started alternating between stand-ups opening and uh, a musical act. And it was an acapella musical act, which was perfect because we didn't have room for a band. JQ and the Bandits. And they would do a number at the very beginning. Well, they would do, you know, an opening piece. They would do five or six songs. They were terrific. And um, I would bring them back at the very end of the show to do my Salmonella character with them. And we did Lion Sleeps Tonight. It was just a silly little thing. But it just kind of bookended the whole thing. And I just love that idea. And that kind of morphed into coming up with the idea to have a girl group called the Bartlett's. And the Bartlett's were these uh, four ladies, usually four, depending on the gig, sometimes we're three. Uh, we held auditions. We got these people, you know, these, these ladies to come out, every one of them more talented than the next. Um, Anastasia Barbasoulis, who is uh, the president and CEO of the Bartlett organization, because I've elected her, she is the historian. And she, uh, I think there's 30 some odd ladies who have been Bartlett's over the years. And so we would have the Bartlett's open. They would do girl group songs from the 50s and 60s. And then I, I would, you know, go up and do my act. And then at the end, I would uh, finish the show with my uh, James Brown parody, Big Butted Woman. And they'd come back on stage to do Big Butted Woman with me. So it was like an extravaganza. So that's how that kind of started. And uh, we took it to Vegas. We were, it was one of the last acts on the, on the Sands stage that the Rat Pack had been, you know, doing for years and years of the legendary shows at the, at the Sands. And so I was the last act on that stage before they blew it up. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with my act at the time, but, you know, but still, um, but it kind of went full circle from being inspired by the rap act to actually playing, playing on that stage where they had been, you know, holding court for so many years. Now, what I love about watching you live, like at Club 1407, or when I'd catch your, your concerts around the city, is you will hold on to a character and do the character for ungodly long periods of time. You just hold and keep to character in a way that's absolutely fearless. You know, what is it about you? Because you see people do characters all the time, and Robin Williams would do 200 characters, but he'd do them for three seconds on a clip. Um, I, I swear there were times I've seen you do Sal, uh, Salmonella for 20 minutes easily. Yeah. You know, what is it about you that makes you able to hold a character that long and have the audience never break fourth wall? I think, you know, having acting training, because I had kind of got into stand-up because it was something that I'd always wanted since I was a kid to try. I mean, uh, apparently, and I kind of have a recollection of this, when I was in kindergarten, I imitated Pat Cooper's Italian wedding bit <laughs> at, at the kindergarten Christmas party. And I made this girl I had a crush on, Ida Green, I made her laugh. So the seed was planted very early. <laughs> But I kind of wanted to stand up because I had no plan B. I was on a hiatus from college um, and started doing stand up because I thought it would lead to acting. Um, I'd always, you know, been in the drama club and do the musicals in high school, all that kind of stuff. You know, always playing the comic relief characters and all these musicals. And um, I thought, you know, that the the time that I started out, the early 80s, you know, um, late 70s, early 80s, 
Robin Williams, Steve Martin, these guys, these stand-ups were trans, um, they were translating to film and TV. They were making, you know, they were, they were getting development deals. They were getting films. They were, and so Hollywood became this place where they just decided, oh, stand-ups are a great place to, to pick from a, you know, that pool of talent is a great place to pick for programming um, and for, for, you know, movies. So I thought that'd be my, my, my entree into, you know, legitimate acting. And uh, it only took 30 years for it to happen. <laughs> um, but that was, you know, I went into it with that in mind. That was, that was going to be my stepping stone into being an actor. And uh, so you've done it. I'm sorry. You've done a ton of acting from Law and Order to, I, I believe you're on the last season of Elementary for that uh, one story yeah. arc. And I, re I realized the dream of playing a cop <laughs> that I always wanted to do. But not only a cop, I got to be a police captain for the whole story that wound up not being good. You know, I had <laughs> to be not, I had no idea, but I was not a nice guy. Um, I didn't find that out until I got the script for the fifth episode. And it was like, oh, Okay, um, <laughs> but I kept whispering, you know, spin off, spin off. Every time I passed by one of the producers, <laughs> but I think that the the ability, for lack of a better word, to stay in a character uh -huh. is ingrained in me from all the training, you know, taking acting class and you know being a, a drama minor and English major in college, and you know all the shows I'd done, and to be able to create a character, uh, a really believable, well-rounded, live character. You gotta do a lot of homework in terms of getting a backstory and, you know, creating the timbre of the voice, uh, uh, the accent, if there's an accent, uh, the physicality, the all of that. And if you do all those things and you get into a character, if you're feeling it and you're focused, you're not aware that time is going by. You're just this person. And so mm. I would keep going as long as I was getting laughs, I'd keep going, you know? Um, but to me, that there's nothing that's more fun than than climbing into the skin of somebody else who's not me and, and being there for a while. You know, it's, I'm always hesitant to want to leave and go back to me. <laughs> but yet on the radio, on the Imus show, you would argue with yourself as different characters you know you would back and forth between um i'm remembering one time and i can't remember the second character but you were doing your tom carvel the the cookie puss and arguing with somebody else who was also you that was the basis for salmon that character it was a character i had uh, created called louis panabianco who was based okay. on the guy i went to high school with named Louis Panamianco, and he he evolved into Salmonella. Um, that was my signature piece in the early days that Tom Carvel did. It was yeah. Tom Carvel and one of his store owners, because the old Tom Carvel, um, the, the old Carvel commercials, Tom Carvel would be in them, kind of like Ray, um, Dave Thomas being in the Wendy's commercials. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would do Tom Carvel talking to Louis Panabianco about his store and and Louis kind of told his story. You know, he had a wife. She had a daughter who had some kind of a malformed foot and she needed an operation and 
and uh, he started to lose it a little bit, lose his composure because Tom Carvel is making him do this Wednesday Sunday promotion where it was buy one get one free. So he had to give away half of his his you know his goods for nothing, and uh, it kind of evolved into this thing where Louis was not happy about it and just kind of exploded. Um, but that was my signature piece, and so that was that was always fun for me to do that back and forth. That was the bit that actually got me on Imus. Because he had he had loved you know the Tom Carvel commercials himself, knowing us you know really nuts they were, um, and um, yeah, so that actually got me on Island. So I was able to do all my characters on that show and more um, over the thirty one years that I was there. Mm. Now it's I don't think people realize how hard it is to bounce back and forth between two voices to bounce back and forth between two characters, neither one of them being you. You know, it, it, there's a difficult degree of difficulty with that. Did you ever have any fear that you were going to slip up, do the wrong voice, bump into yourself at some point? I mean, there's always that fear, and it probably has happened, you know, 20, 30 times over the years at least. Um, we just, you, you, you don't focus enough and you lose one of the voices, you lose one of the characters, and so... It's, it kind of becomes this nebulous thing back and forth. Now all of a sudden, the whole bit's completely shot now because there aren't two defined people. Um, there's a guy, I forget his name now. He's a DJ. Uh, I think a morning guy, if I'm not mistaken. And he did five different parts on his radio show. He was the announcer. He was the news guy. He was the weather guy. He was his sidekick. And this is, I think there's a YouTube video of him switching between the voices. It's just him on the microphone. Oh, uh, another guy who's calling in on the phone. It was, I mean, there's no way in hell I could have achieved that kind of brilliance. I mean, I wish I knew his name because he really deserves the credit. But it was so phenomenal. You know, when it's, when it's done and it's done well, there's nothing like it. I mean, I was very influenced by Jonathan Winters and all his characters. Mm -hmm. um, and Peter Sellers. I used to love Peter Sellers' movies where he would play three or four different parts in, the, in a movie. Um, you know, Jonathan Winters would do his bits. He would go back and forth between characters. And sometimes they would there would be a crossover there. Um, it's it's always been fun for me. You know, and it's... the. the I guess the, the product of being in my room um, by myself, trying to amuse myself, <laughs> coming up with these different people who I have conversations with. Um, did I tell you that comedy and, and mental illness are very... Uh, They're connected? Connected. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually funny because we, we've worked together a couple of times. We haven't really talked much because I've always been so unbelievably intimidated by you because you get you've got such a mythology attached to you i mean it's it's like when they tell you you're gonna work with rob bartlett they almost whisper it like it's a mob deal you know you're gonna be opening for rob bartlett anyway, this is the first i'm hearing of this by the way oh this oh my god hearing of this. no it, it's um when i saw you live and then i was talking to other comics and I, I'm describing the comic I saw live, and I couldn't remember your name. And, and they were they're like, you mean Rob from the Imus show? We used to be at the triplets, that guy. 
And I'm like, I guess so. I think it was like stupid not to know you. You've always been revered by other comics because your stuff is so smart and so fun. And yet at the same time, incredibly silly and, and just incredibly fun for everybody that's watching it. But what it, how did you, how do you create something that can be both incredibly intellectual at times? Because some of your bits are really, really the references. You need to be this tall to ride this ride. And yet at the same time, so silly like Tom Carvel, because there were times Tom Carvel degenerated into sounds. And, mm. and, you know, it was clearly not that you, it wasn't the bit breaking down. It was clearly, no, that's the point of the joke for you at that point how did you achieve that mix and how on earth did you know that would work um i didn't know it was going to work um i just kind of did it and discovered that it worked um and then i would do whatever it took to make sure that it continued to work um you know coming up with a character as the and, and my process of writing is not the most disciplined, um, at least for my act. I mean, with Imus, it was very disciplined because I would do research and actually sit down at the at the computer and, and write out bits because they had to be a specific length. And, um, you know, they were, you know, increasingly more political as they went on. And I've never been a political comic because my, my feeling is that, you know, no one gives a shit about what I think about anything, nor should they, um, because I don't know anything. I'm the first one to admit, I don't know a thing. And, um, but the, the smart, so, so I would just come up with an idea for a character and wing it. You know, I would, it usually came out of crowd work. I would be talking to somebody and I would fall into something and just kind of explore it, you know, just go by my instincts you know, try to come up with little defining moments for the character um, and just letting it happen. You know, it's it's one of those great things. And it's, it's part of any anything creative. You're pulling it from yourself. And there are a million different influences that brings you to that point. You know, I'm pulling in, you know, memories of the guy that I saw on the subway once, you know, that filed away somewhere and, and then, you know, a teacher I used to have and then something I heard somebody say that made me think of something. You just combine all those together and just ends up spilling out. I used to um, go to gigs uh, with my manager, Gary, and um, I would come up with a voice for whatever reason. I'd see a road sign and say it in the voice and then he would start interviewing me as that voice. And I would decide who the character was. And we would spend long hours on these road gigs, him just interviewing me as whoever this character was. And I would just, just reassociate him and be the character. And that was always the way that I got to create the characters. Um, uh, and then that's one of the, the things that I love the most. It, it's, it's very, I owe it a lot to Jonathan Winters because I mean, I think that that was kind of his process as well. I don't think he ever sat down and wrote what he was gonna do or say. He just had these ideas for these characters and let them live and breathe through him. It's almost like I'm channeling, you know, I'm like the, the medium. I'm, I'm the host for these spirits. I'm, I'm throwing them forth. But to me, being silly and smart aren't mutually exclusive. 
I mean, I don't think there's any more satisfying laugh than one you can get from something that's really smart and clever um, or a reference that's so arcane. You're really doing it for yourself, your own amusement. And then, like, if there's two or three people in the audience who laugh at it, it becomes this special little extra thing, you know. A whole bit doesn't depend on it, but to me, that little extra, you know, aspect of it just makes it makes it that much more satisfying. Um, but I've always been about the silly, because to me, silly is really the heart of comedy. Um, you know, and, and you can be um, sarcastic and silly, you can be political and silly, you can be... Um, scathingly satirical and still silly and i think silly is like the unifying aspect of humor that everyone can relate to you know not everybody likes a straight monologist or a political comedian or but everybody it seems to me loves the silly you know monty python is a great example of something that's really really smart and impossibly silly at the same time and yeah. uh, it's very satisfying you know, for for me as a performer and hopefully for the audience as well. But you might be the only stand-up that does both. You might be, you know, very well be, you know, of our generation of stand-ups, the, the one guy that's kind of embraced that, you know. And what I love seeing in the audience is I love seeing their reaction when they get something because sometimes they don't get it till two or three jokes later. And, and, <laughs> I'll do a line and it, 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 that's like that, and it'll get nothing. And I'll just pause and I'll say, you, "You'll get that on the way home. You'll put in the windshield wipers, and it'll hit you in the head." <laughs> I mean, it's um, true. It's true. When we worked at Club fourteen oh seven, um, somebody had 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 the audacity to heckle when you were on stage, and your comeback was a Beatles lyric. It was just like you popped out a Beatles lyric, said that. And just one about your business, and it took him like another minute, and then he figured out what song it was, and he blurted out the title. And I just remember this because it wasn't you weren't mean, you weren't upset, you just said something just confusing to get him to stop. And it was one of the most brilliant approaches that I'd ever seen. And as a young comic who was working with you, it taught me, oh. This is about commanding the stage. You know, Rob didn't have to get mean. Rob didn't have to, you know, talk about how small the guy's dick was or how stupid he was. He just had to assert command, which is what he did. I wish I could remember what that was. I, I wish I, I could remember yeah. the line, too. <laughs> uh, but I just, I love the fact that even when you did crowd work, it never bordered on mean. And it, the other thing I love about what you do is that you're not afraid to explore the happier themes in comedy. You know, every a lot of comedy is written about, oh, my life sucks, or I hate this, and that's what it is. Where some of your stuff, especially your musical stuff, is joyous to watch it. It's it's cornering on happier emotions. Is that a conscious choice? Um, I don't necessarily think it's as conscious a choice as it is that that's kind of always my fallback. I mean, I still like to do something that's got a little bit of meat to it and something that's maybe dark, um, something that's maybe a verboten kind of topic, um, you know, or, or I'll take a, a, a topic that has been beaten to death, you know, um, and become hack 
and, and cliche and try to squeeze more out of it. Um, but my fallback is always to be something happy, you know, because to me, it's that's part of the job description. You know, the, the job description is to make people laugh, to make them happy. That's the definition of being a comedian. You know, laughter makes people happy. Laughter reduces blood pressure. Laughter um, is cathartic and uh, helps anxiety. And it's so happy to me, you know, is always the fallback position, but that's not to be, I mean, there's still a lot of humor to be gleaned from stuff that is not necessarily happy. Um, you know, especially stuff that's got a message to it is usually firmly ensconced in, in, in something that's, you know, darker or, or not quite as happy and, and pulling the laughs. I'm, I'm most impressed by comedians who are able to go to the darker regions. Um, you know, like Pryor and, and Carlin and Chris Rock and, and guys like that who can go to these really awful places and pull humor out of them. Um, to me, that's really true genius. So I'm kind of lazy. I, I go for the happy. So, <laughs> and and music is definitely part of it. You're right about that. I, mean, um, yeah, I think every comedian deep down wants to be a musician. You know, every yeah. comedian wants to be a rock star, and every guy in a band I've ever known wants to be a comedian. It's very funny. Yeah. Uh, but to to me, marrying music to to comedy because I you know I grew up, um, you know chewing on the Mad Magazine song parodies, uh, which, by the way, were just the lyrics. You had to sing them yourself. I mean, it was not even musical. It was, to me, it was just genius. They would just change the lyrics to a, you know, a, a song from the American Songbook, and they would do a song parody, and you'd sing it to yourself, and you'd see how really clever and smart and funny they were. So I always liked to do song parody for that reason. And to me, marrying music and comedy together just seems like such a natural and that's also very joyous and, and brings uh, I think happiness to a to an audience I also want to talk about because you're the only comic I've ever seen who's comfortable both ways I've seen you on stage alone for an hour just you and I also see you do so much ensemble stuff throughout your career the stuff on the radio uh, when you have your extravaganzas um, even the, the the identical triplets that you uh, did with uh, Eddie Murphy and Bob. I mean, all of this, you seem to be comfortable working with people and you seem to be comfortable working on your own. And every time I've seen you work with people, you're clearly the star of the show, but you also set everybody up so that they get their laughs too. What is it about ensemble work that you enjoy? I think that that's one of the uh, tenets of acting. Uh, and the reason why casting agents used to be so hesitant to hire stand-ups to do anything uh, legitimate because they would fear that the comic would not know how to play nice with others. You know, um, Tabletop, which is one of, one of my favorite shows I've ever been in, favorite plays, um, the director um, really had to be convinced by the author of, of the play by the playwright to cast me uh, was a part of this uh, commercial uh, TV commercial director, but not the guy who directed the actors, the guy who directed the product shots. 
So it was, you know, the steamy hamburger or the cheese pull from a piece of pizza. Or, and he was a tyrant. And I went in to the audition with the, the sides of this kind of like monologue this guy had. And I left and the, the playwright apparently thought that I was so much like the guy it was based on because he had worked in the crew of one of these guys that he was he would not move that he wanted me for the part but she was kind of hesitant because she thought he's a stand-up he doesn't know how to work with other people but that's one of the basic tenets of acting it's you know i mean jerry zacks um you know the great director jerry zacks he's got um a philosophy which is you toss the ball back and forth it's a team you know it's like being in a basketball um court you know, it's, it's like you're setting each other up and it's the, the unit It's for the greater good. Everyone will get their moment. You just have to trust that you'll get your moment. And more times than not, you know, I would say the majority of the time, if you're doing that, the other people on stage are going to do the same thing because you're secure enough to know that your life's not going to get stepped on. You'll set somebody up. They'll set you up. It's like give and take, which is exhilarating when you're doing anything like that. Um, that passing the ball back and forth is just great. In one of the early improvs that um, Eddie and Bob and I did at Dixon's, which was where the three of us had started, which then Dixon's White House in on Hicksville Road in Massapequa, um, was this thing. Eddie had this jacket. It was like a, a fur jacket um, with a hood. And, and Bob, you know, always had the cowboy hat. And so Eddie was um, an Eskimo and Bob was a hunter and I was a walrus who, who, who sounded like Ringo, obviously. Yeah. Because I'm not the walrus, John's the walrus trying to talk his way out of being hunted by, by the hunter, you know, but I'm not a walrus and I had like drumsticks stuck up, you know, <laughs> for the dust. Um, and, and the give and take there, the back and forth with the three of us, and we trusted each other to do that, it was, you know, nothing better than, than that. I mean, I, I enjoy being on stage by myself, just kind of, you know, doing whatever, but it's, it's that much more fun and satisfying, more satisfying to do it with other people. Um, doing the odd couple with, with, with Nathan and Matthew, sitting at the poker table and, and just doing the Neil Simon lines, you know, the, the Bible of comedy, you know, um, you're reading scripture basically as you dialogue and the back and forth between all the guys at the table, that was just, that's heaven, you know, it was just the greatest. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's steeped in acting. It's, it's the ability to trust and, and to, um, to do your best for the whole, you know, um, it's it's a great it's a it's a great feeling. Now you you do a, a ton of acting and you know from Broadway to to film. There's a different approach for stage and for film as well. Is there one that's more satisfying for you? Is there one that's easier for you based upon what you've learned in stand up? Um, <clears throat> obviously, you know, doing theater, there's a similarity because it's live, and you have an audience. Um, it's a little different in that you can't react and adjust based on their um, reaction. You can't change anything the way you would normally do in stand-up. You would 
switch orders a bit so you would slide into something else or you'd go off on a tangent and just do some some improv and do some you know scatting whatever with crowd work when you're on stage you you got to do the dialogue as it's written because the play, playwrights apparently they really don't like when you make up more dialogue in the shows um nor does a director really like that either or the other actors for that matter but um but there is a similarity in that you, you get that response, that immediate response. In film and television, it's very, very different. And it's the style of the acting is more the kind of stuff that we get into the, you know, the sense memories and stuff like that, where you're inhabiting a character, you're making it it's 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 the example of living truthfully under um, you're trying to be as real as possible. You're in the station house in elementary and you're talking to the, the rest of the cops. Um, you've got to almost believe that you are doing it and you have to use the same kind of inflections and, and the same, same kind of movements that you would in a normal situation. In stand-up and theater, it's a little bit more exaggerated Obviously, because you're you don't have a, a camera right up in your mush showing every little you know nuance of, of your eye blinks, but um, I like each of them for different reasons, you know. Um, they are very, very different, you know, they really are. Yeah. Uh, even TV to film is, is is different, even though most of the TV that I've done has been filmed and not videotaped. Um, and it's a one camera, not a three camera shoot. Um, film, they spend more time doing scenes. They all do many, many, many more takes than they do in TV because in TV, it's like, okay, we got we to gotta keep going. We got 16 pages we got to do today. And then we got 14 pages for next week's episode we're going to be doing simultaneously with the, with, the, with the B crew. And, you know, so it's all, if you do three takes, of, of something in, in TV, it's a lot. Um, but always, you know, it's so funny. All, most directors will let you do another take if there's something that you wanted to try that you didn't get to do. Um, Johnny Lee Miller directed one of the episodes I did with him, and um, every single time it was like, Is there anything else you need to try? I want to do something more? We do it one more time. It's just, it's like that kind of giving, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and in film, it's like, okay, do this one. And it's like 30, 40 takes later. And then it's always like, okay, just do whatever. And then in, at least the films that I've done, you, you do like, you kind of improv your way around what the scene's supposed to be. Those tend to be more natural because you're not trying to get the exact dialogue word for word. And those are the ones that usually wind up in the um, gag reel during the credits at the end. <laughs> a movie I did called All in Time. That's exactly where um, some of that stuff ended up with in a little box next to the credits, you know, with me going, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you out of your fucking mind? I mean, stuff like that was, you know, always yeah. fun. You know, always, always fun. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it is different, but it, I don't think I like one more than the other. It's, I like them each for different reasons. I also want to talk about the stuff you did on radio because that's another skill set. 
you have to bring more to your voice and you have to bring more to, you know, enunciation, diction, clarity of presentation. Um, I'm amazed at how much you take your time because when, when I see you in a club, you know, a character like Sal can start talking faster, whereas he can't on the radio, you right. know, and, and that discipline was that something that somebody sat you down and taught you? Was that something that you taught yourself? It, de it definitely was something that was taught to me just by virtue of, you know, the more I did it, the more I, I learned about how it's done the way it's supposed to be done. I mean, timing, I think, is one of the is more important in radio than even, you know, stand-up or film or TV. I remember um, Charles McCord and I were, um, we were still back at NBC, Charles was uh, Imus's newsman and sidekick for years and years and years. And, years. and um, Imus, I think, was in rehab, and Charles was was hosting the show. And I had written a piece called RoboComic, which was kind of a parody of RoboCop, which had just come out um, in the theaters. And, you know, the big punch at the end was, of course, the robot malfunctions and falls apart. And so we needed, you know, a sound effect to, you know, like metal falling apart and, you know, falling out to the floor, making, making a noise like that. And I learned more about timing. We spent 45 minutes timing when that should come in after the last line of dialogue. And when we hit it and when we knew it, we both knew it immediately. But it was like finding that exact moment. I mean, that just taught me a lot about the whole idea of a radio. Um, I had done uh, kind of like a, it's almost like the National Lampoon Radio Hour in college called The Barf Show. And it was the same kind of thing where you're, you're more aware that people can't see you. So you have to be a lot more descriptive in your voice and in the, the sound effects that you choose of the music to, to create that illusion that people can picture in your head. And um, I learned more from being on the Imus show, I think, than anywhere else, than anything else I've ever done, more than any acting class. I just learned more about writing and comedy and performing and discipline, as you said, because I had to come up with a bit a day, five days a week, sometimes two, depended. Um, and I did it for 31 years. So, you know, there's, there's thousands of, of bets. Uh, you know, a handful of them still hold up and are funny, um, but more often than not, they weren't. Um, but, you know, you'd have to look, because the, the show was very current events driven, and obviously most morning shows are. So I didn't have to really know what was going on in the news to know what to make fun of, what to do, and which character to pick to do it. And it was a, a class I took. It was a, a kind of like a master class. I don't know if he still does them or not. Um, but the Robert McKee Story Structure class, a yep. three-day weekend class, and it teaches you about the elements of story and uh, uses Casablanca as the paradigm for it to it's the last day you watch Casablanca and you see all the little moments that uh, that he talks about the other days. And one of the things he said was, there is structure, the story. There's structure to anything written, whether it's a novel or it's a play or it's a movie or whatever it is, short story, it has structure. And structure, people might think, ties your hands. Um, 
structure makes you stay within the confines of a certain aspect. And he said, it's really the opposite. Structure opens you up because knowing what the rules are forces you to a place where you come up with something to fit the structure that makes what you're writing aerial. It makes it that much more exciting, you know? Um, instead of writing there, there's a house uh, on a cliff, you know, it's uh, a small house that sits on a cliff. You know, it's like, yeah, because you have to have active words um, to, to paint a mental picture. So it's in the structure. Um, and, you know, I had certain parameters. It had to be, you know, in the earlier days, a bit could go for two minutes, two and a half minutes, sometimes three. And then as the show progressed, they got smaller and smaller to where we were doing 60 second bits, you know, some of the last uh, things at the end. Um, even song parodies had to be within a certain time frame. Uh, because you, you're dealing with short <coughs> span theater, people who are yeah. you know, distracted, they're in the car, whatever. So you really got to kind of grab them, get your laughs and get out, you know, the old leave them wanting more thing. Uh, and it had to be something that he would find funny. Um, even though to his credit, he let me do a lot of things that he didn't find funny that everybody else thought was wrong. Um, you know, he, he, he just assumed that he was wrong, that it was funny. He just didn't find it funny. So it had to be within a certain frame. You know, I couldn't use language unless I, I was going to beep it out. You could do when we were doing post-production work. But when the show evolved and became on TV, I was doing the characters live every morning. So you couldn't, you couldn't curse then. You couldn't use any language then. Um, so all those things almost made it easier because I knew what the rules were. It's like, you know, when you're raising a child, it's very comforting and it gives them a lot of security to know how far they're allowed to push things. You know, you give them free reign, it's, it doesn't give them a sense of well-being apparently. But, um, so I always liked the idea of having a structure that I had to adhere to because it made me focus more to what I was doing. It's, it's wonderful to watch that process and, you know, having seen it, you know, when the radio broadcasts were live uh, and also seeing you in clubs, I'm astounded by your characters evolving, by your characters getting more complex. There are some of them you've been doing for decades at this point, mm -hmm. and they're not the same character they were when they started. You know, th that evolution that, that you go through with some characters, for instance, uh, Sal, I know that you'll still whip out on occasion uh, and a couple of the other ones. Do you consciously update them or are they just growing alongside you? I think they're really just growing alongside you. I mean, because, you know, characters, as with any anything, you know, artistic, it's like, like um, Broadway, let's say, for example, it's a living, breathing uh, there's all this controversy when the latest uh, production of West Side Story came out because they took out I Feel Pretty and they changed a lot of one of the you know a lot of the things that the show is known for um, and like people who really loved the original but all bent out of shape but a living breathing thing evolves it grows and so to kind of acknowledge that and incorporate it makes sense it's not the same world that it was in 1957 
think that when the, when the show was first written and produced to today, I mean, it's 70 years. So it's, you know, it's almost 70 years. It's a, it's a different world. And so to make it fit that world, I mean, some stuff can remain the same, Shakespeare, but the ways you do it can be different. You know, I've seen Shakespeare done as a Civil War drama. I've seen Shakespeare done at the Globe Theater in, in, in London, where it's done traditionally, where the men play the women. Um, both, both of them work. So with the characters, as I grow and become more aware and hopefully getting smarter as my life goes on and learning things, I think the characters do too, because essentially each of my characters has a little bit of me in them, you know, because they're just by virtue of the fact they're coming from inside. And so um, as I'm growing, the characters kind of grow alongside you. They, because they're living and breathing and, and, you know, ideally if you want them to be real enough, they have to, you know, have their backstory, everything gets informed by the backstory. And then the character, even just addressing what's happening in current events changes because it's a different world than it was when I first started doing it. So I think it's just a natural progression. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, the essential character is still there. You know, all the catchphrases and all the stuff that people associate with that character is still there, but it evolves. You know, it's like Groucho Marx, the character that he played in all the movies. Uh, you look at Coconuts, the first one that they committed to film, all the way to, I think, Love Happy was the last one that they did. And that character changes. I mean, the essential elements of that character stays the same. But you can notice little subtle changes in, in, in it based on the time period of you know, over how many years it was, 30 years. So I, I, I think that anything that you're doing live, which is going to be living and breathing, almost has to change. You know, um, even Jack Benny doing the Skinfins character that he did had an evolution. I mean, sometimes it's not a lot, but it definitely gets informed by whatever's going on in the world at that time, however you're feeling. I also love when I listen to your process, it sounds very much like, like you create on stage, like you bring so much on stage. How much do you watch what you've done to make your next set better? Or, or is this set to set you're gonna your goal is to create um quite possibly to my detriment uh i've never been a fan of watching or listening to stuff that i've done um you know, the, the two cds i put out you know it can sometimes listen to them without without cringing uh, but for the moment and, and i know you learn that way and then I, certainly I've noticed that when I have taken the time to either look at or see things, like I, I found, I don't know how this got out, but somewhere there's, there was a video of me um, at Catch. It was, a, I think it was a video audition for, uh, for Cher. She was looking for an opening act. And so I had the Bartlett's and they did a little number and then I did, you know, 15 minutes out of whatever. I found it and it was from the, early 90s, I guess. And um, some of the material I still do. And I saw it in its infancy and learned a lot, you know, some things that I'd forgot that I probably shouldn't have let go by, you know. Um, 
and I didn't hate it. You know, I, I didn't hate it, but I was never really much of a fan of, of doing that. Only because, like I said, I usually bring it to the stage because to me, going from here to here to there is much more expeditious and seems purer than here to here to here to there. You know, and that extra step, I feel like yeah. it takes something out of it, at least for me, you know. Uh, you know, if I'm writing a, a sketch or something like you know, for, for Imus or the stuff I did for Ruth the Spectator or the stuff I do now for my podcast, it's, I still do this, but the original concept kind of goes through here. Because writing is really rewriting, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's editing. It's knowing what to, you know, Gary <laughs> always would, would remark how I would start doing a bit and the bit would grow where the bit would start out being like a three, four minute piece. And then as you were saying before, all of a sudden it's a 15 minute piece and then it's like half my act. It's just, you know, you, you got to know how to, is it uh, kill your darlings or, yeah, you know, learn how to edit stuff, get it out, you know. But for me, because I, I've always been more of a writer. That's always been my strong suit. So I look at guys like you, who have the ability to just turn on a magical performance almost to my eyes effortlessly every time you're on stage. And I just, I marvel at that ability. If I could do a character for 15 minutes, I would do every character for 15 minutes. I mean, how could you not want to explore the full depth and breadth of what you're capable of? I would think as a performer that reeling it in is much more difficult when you know you have the talent to keep going. Um, yeah, but you also have to remember it's not just for you. I mean, that's the key. Um, you know, I did a bit about childbirth that I thought was great, I loved. And Gary and uh, one of the guys, who, one of the husbands, one of the Bartlett's, um, they both hated it, hated it. Um, and eventually I wound up dropping it. Um, because I kind of got the feeling that maybe, maybe it wasn't worth doing it. Somebody was having that strong a reaction to it, just kind of trusting that maybe, maybe they were right. You know, you two people who knew me and knew my act and, mm -hmm. and knew the audience and could hear the audience because they'd be in the back. You know, a lot of times you don't really hear a whole audience. You hear part of it. Yeah. You know, necessarily hear the ones in the back whatever, or even hear comments or stuff like that. Um, so you kind of trust, you have to trust them to just like, let it go. You know, 99 times out of a hundred, they're right. You have yeah. to remember that you're doing it for people. You can't be self-indulgent. You know, the idea is to entertain them, not ultimately bore them to death. Um, has that gotten easier for you as you've developed a fan base? Because you have people come out to your show. It's not like when you started headlining and people were coming out because comedy was the draw. No, when you have a show, people are coming to see you. Does that make your choices of material easier? Does that make, you know, your selection of how you're going to perform or what you're going to perform easier knowing that they're fans? Yeah, I, I don't spend as much time putting together a set list um, because I pretty much know what they're going to want to see in here. Uh, I know what I'm going to want to do. And I try to make a, a set list that combines the two. Uh, 
Rick Nielsen uh, from Cheap Trick, a dear, dear friend, he, uh, he makes up a set list every single night they play and they play, they gotta play 300 dates a year. They, they have, I don't know how many thousands, one thousands of the shows they played and they're all different. There's no set set list. They pull stuff from 30 years ago and they do a couple of the new album songs and then, then mix it up with stuff in between. It's never the same. It's all how they're feeling. They'll do the same three songs every show. You know, they'll always do Surrender. They'll always do I Want You To Want Me. They'll always do Dream Police. And with me, it's I'll always do Salmonella's Night Before Christmas, even if it's not Christmas time. Uh, I'll always do The Wheel of Jordan. Uh, and I'll always do um, the airline piece. Everything else is kind of off for grabs. If I'm doing something, let's say for an audition or for a specific I spend a lot more time creating that, the order and trimming and, and whatever of the of the set so that I I know what I'm gonna do. Um, I put the set list on the floor of the stage just so I have something to refer to, but I'm constantly switching stuff around. You know, and it's, I find that when you switch stuff around, and it's something that I learned when I was an MC, I would do one piece in between acts. You know, they were much shorter than I could get away with it. And I discovered that when I changed the order of stuff, I learned something about the bit. I no longer used the bit before to segue into it. It was now separate and apart. And then you learn something about the bit, which gives you more ideas, or, or maybe that should be trimmed. Or, um, And so when you move it around, it almost takes on a different meaning. Uh, there's a, a performance by Tom Baudet um, called Exploded, which is a series this is him when he was uh, going to college and lived in, and as a mountain man in like this commune in Washington State and becoming electrocuted by touching a high power uh, wire on a telephone pole because they were robbing electricity to the, the, the house they were living in. And he writes, he wrote the stories, I think they're all a page piece. He puts them in a stack and then at every performance he throws it in the air and lets the audience pick which one to pick up and read. And he said, because he does that, it changes the story. Sometimes it's about this, and sometimes it's about that. And there are all these tangents that come off of whatever becomes the main story. And I learned that that's also true with material. You can, you know, you can discover new things with material when you, when you do that. Whatever. Um, but you can't really do that kind of stuff. You can't be as free to do that if you have something specific you need to do you know, like you're doing it for a booker or, or you're trying to, you know, get a, get a gig somewhere, whatever. You, you really want to be specific uh, and, and have total control over it and just, you know, hammer, 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 hammer. Um, where with a, you know, when people are there to see me, I can just kind of take my time and mess with them. And then it's always, it's always different. You know, it's always different. I, I do a lot more crowd work with audiences when they're coming to see me. Because I think part of what they want to see is me as a person. They already know the characters and the bits for the most part, but they want to see. That's what why everyone would be. You know, I don't change my material all that much, but at least the crowd work is different each time. And sometimes can create a theme that I can always go back to and get some running jokes out of. Um, but for the most part, you know, I remember Eddie. Uh, I remember seeing Eddie. He was uh, after Saturday Night Live, after 48 Hours, after uh, Beverly Hills Cop. He was on the 
I guess Delirious was the first uh, mm-hmm. was the first movie. He was on that tour, and I was playing the Richmond Comedy Club, and he was playing the Richmond Jagunda Dome, whatever it was, which I could see from the from the balcony of my Motel Six, and I watched the people drive. Thousands of people going at the sea. And I got a phone call from Richie Tinkin, his manager. He was in town. I said, Eddie, love to see you. So they drove the tour bus over at two o'clock in the morning to my, to my motel. They took me to the Hyatt where Eddie was staying. And uh, Eddie was saying how it was the strangest thing that he didn't have to do anything to get laughs. You know, he, he could say one word which had nothing to do with anything, and he would get a laugh. You know, he said, it's just because they're excited to see me, they're there to see me. It reminds me of a story, and, and Rolling Stone did a, a profile, Bob Hope, and uh, the writer of, of the piece went to London to see Hope perform in London. I think he was born in England, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, um, Bob did a topical joke that really people in England shouldn't have gotten because it was it had some kind of idiom or something in it or it was something that would be kind of a foreign thing to, to a, a British audience. And after the show was over, the writer asked the person, um, you know that line that Mr. Hope did about this? And this is the answer. He said, did you understand it? He said, no. He said, but yet you laughed. And he said, well, why? He said, because he's Bob Hope and I trust him. <laughs> so it just, you know, it just makes sense, you know, when, you know, when you get to the point where people are going to see you, you get that luxury. You know? the, the key is not allowing that to make you get lazy. Yeah. Which I have definitely been guilty of many, 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 many times. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like this is actually a harder way, way to write. And I would think when because you've done your fair share of late night shows and television spots as well, I would think it would be also make constructing a set for that a little bit more difficult than it would be for a straight monologist. Um, yeah, yeah. A matter of fact, the, the, the first Letterman shot I did, um, they called, I think it was a Tuesday, just because I'd done the, the New York Big Laugh Off. And... Um, Letterman's uh, booker, Bob, I can't remember his name now, um, blotted it out of my memory, um, was one of the judges. And so he calls, I think it was a Tuesday, and said, you'd be interested in doing the show. I said, yeah. I start thinking about what my set's going to be. And the next day I get the call. Um, you know, they hadn't given me a date. I figured I would do the process the way everybody did. They, they would come out, put together a set. They'd come see it. They'd give me feedback. I'd create the set. And then finally, when I had worked it out to the point, they would give me a date and I would do it. So... Next day is Wednesday. He calls and he says, um, "Can you do it tomorrow?" Uh, I said, "What?" He said, "Well, Elton John canceled, and it's it's Fran Lebowitz and Jerry Lopez, the surfer, who is uh, promoting the Conan movie. He's in the Conan the Barbarian movie, um, and Elton John was supposed to be the guest, but he he, he canceled." I figured, all right, I already know what I'm going to do. Let me let me just do it. I said, yeah. I didn't have a suit, so I, I wound up renting a tux. It was the tux I was going to be wearing for my wedding the following month, figuring maybe I'll get a break. Um, maybe I'll get it for free for the wedding. Um, I didn't really have any shoes that were TV-worthy, so I 
got a pair of black Nikes with the sneakers with the tuxedo. And um, I guess because the censors hadn't seen any tape of me, I had to do my act or what I had planned on doing in the hallway for the censor. And to my horror, about three minutes of my seven-minute set was not going to be allowed. So I was flipping out. It's like, what do I do? Well, what I did was is I ended it at four minutes. And Dave didn't think that there was going to be time for me to sit on the panel, so he had not prepared anything to add. And after I finished my set, it was... They're going, you know, they're pointing me towards the couch. I go and, you know, I force my way onto the couch and he doesn't know what to ask me. And it, and it was the worst interview ever. Um, so this guy, I think he opens with, so this comedy thing, is that going to be, uh, you know, a permanent thing for you? Or like almost like with that material, you're going to try to make a living doing comedy? And I said, yeah. He said, what'd you do before you did this? I said, well, you know, I had a variety of jobs. I, I worked as an elevator operator. Um, in an office building here in New York, uh, you know, I had, had a lot of ups and downs, thinking that it was like kind of an I ironic thing to say, you know, almost not trying to do it like I thought it was really funny, mm -hmm. which Dave thought I was trying to do. And there was this pause where it was just this look. And then went to commercial and he never said two words to me during the break. And it was just, I guess I probably should have prepared a little better for this. This is a big deal. But, you know, hindsight's 2020. But yeah, I mean, it definitely is difficult to put together a serious set because every minute counts, every word counts or something like that. You want there to be no filler. You know, you want it all to be straight and solid. I also, also want to talk, and we got to talk about this. You wrote a show, a Broadway show. You know, it, when when we get to you know meet our maker whatever maker we believe in you know what you do with your life boom that's got to be the first card down I would think yeah you know what it's to me it's part of of the history you know I don't like using the word journey because I just think it sounds so pretentious it's it's part of the the order of things in my life um, it's just another moment you know. Uh, I think there are moments that have been greater than that. You know, certainly a, a majority of them are, you know, not quite as great as that. Uh, it came, you know, out of the blue. It was when I was doing Vegas um, at the Sands. Uh, a, a theater producer, a guy by the name of Mitchell Maxwell, who had produced Damn Yankees, Jerry Lewis on Broadway, and other shows. He owned a couple of off-Broadway theaters downtown. And um, he had kind of known me from Imus, and he was out in Vegas just on vacation. And I guess won a ton of money on the roulette table and saw that I was playing and decided to go to see the show. The show was over. He spoke to Gary and said, I'd like to meet with you guys. So we arranged to meet with him the next day. I had had sweet and they had stopped really renovating the stands because they were going to be blowing it up so they had the hotel and then they had like kind of like bungalow stuff towards the back i was in one of the bungalows apparently i was in the jfk bungalow um which had this, the same shag carpeting it had i guess when jfk was there and a mirror 
above the bed um, and a separate entrance, I guess, so that, you know, Marilyn Monroe could come in and out of room. And um, they came and we got, we got room service, you know, hors d'oeuvres or whatever, drink. And he said, you know, how would you like to do the show in a theatrical setting? You know, you do it in a the theater. Um, and that's kind of what I'd always worked towards. I'd already my stand up. And his idea was he was just going to throw the spotlight on the fat guy because comics were starting to get popular. I mean, Rob uh, Becker had a Defending the Caveman, which was enormously successful um, because he's a marketing genius as well. But it, it ran forever and then went out on the road forever. Uh, so I think Mitchell thought, well, why don't I jump in on this band ring? And my attitude can't really pigeonhole. It's not really one thing. It's not really connected. It's just, it's kind of based on Jonathan Winters. They would set him loose in an attic when there was just a whole bunch of props and he would just go into stuff and then come out of it, you know? And that's kind of what I modeled my act after. And so I started, you know, Gary and I started talking about it. And Gary said, you know, it would be really great is if you made it something more than just your stand-up. You know, you're a writer. Why don't you see if you can write something to connect it all? So I wrote this play. It was kind of like the producers in that it was about a theatrical producer who came to a comedian and wanted to put him on, on, on Broadway at the time. Um, because it was never supposed to be on Broadway. It was supposed to be off Broadway. Or, or awful, for that matter. Um, and then they discovered that when they were going to get insurance on me, that because I'm heavy, you know, they had to get extra insurance because they were afraid I was going to have a heart attack act I was doing, then they realized that they would make more money on the insurance if I died. So they hire a hitman, who was Salmonella, who was supposed to kill me, so that they could collect the money on the insurance. And it was kind of wacky and crazy and whatever. And uh, the producers weren't crazy about it. So they said, do something more personal. So I, I wrote this thing that was semi-autobiographical. It was about a comedian turning 40, not being where he wanted to be professionally, uh, dealing with family, trying to keep a family together with wife and kids and be in show business. And uh, I was in the, the set was a garage. I was cleaning out my garage. It was a suburban setting. And it would allow me to just grab things and do, them, do the pieces for my act. And it centered around a... a a very difficult, challenging um, a, a tough relationship with, with a father, um, an absentee father. So the whole thing, you know, and there was sentiment in it, which I think was the death knell for it, that there was actually some sentiment in it. And so we did it out of town in Connecticut. It was called Have a Nice Life, a big fat comedy. I had Emily Skinner playing my wife. Emily was a Tony-nominated actress. I had Mark Waldrup, who was a director with a lot of credits, great comedy director. We did it at the Rich Forum in, in Stanford for a couple weeks and uh, got mixed reviews. There were two. One was good and one was like, eh. And so there were a lot of things that they thought needed to be changed. So... The summer comes and I start rewriting it and they say, well, Gene O'Neill Theater is going to be vacant. We can have it. And Gary said, well, if we can do Broadway, we got to do Broadway. Um, they said, you know, that script is not going to really work. Broadway. So they brought in Jack O'Brien, the guy who did Hairspray, and, you know, uh, 
uh, Adam's family and about 500 other enormous hits. And he kind of helped me woodshed the script and it was much more streamlined. Same basic theme pieces. Cast Dana Reeve, the late, great Dana Reeve is my wife. Joyce Van Patten, um, great character actress who I kind of had a crush on in the 70s when I was a kid. Uh, played my agent. And we opened at the Eugene O'Neill Theater in October with 16 previews, four performances. The pull quote from the Times was avert your eyes. So <laughs> we, we didn't last a week. We closed at the end of the week. Um, Sunday was our last performance. And uh, it shouldn't have been on Broadway. I think that was the problem. I think they were all just waiting, waiting for me to come to Broadway so they could just stick it to me because I had no business being on Broadway. And I think it was it was the first show that season. I opened that season, 1990, yeah. So, you know, that's <clears throat> that. You know, I licked my wounds for a year because I didn't book anything because I thought I was going to be doing the show. And... Um, but yeah. uh, having been one of the people at the previews, you know, it was a good show. It was... Okay. It was, it was a, a very good show. And, you know, it's, uh, for me, one of the things that I thought was unfair about it was they wanted your stand-up. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, all the all the reviews I read of it is, you know, such a brilliant stand-up and, you know, this show doesn't live up to it. They wanted your stand-up. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was unfair when mm -hmm. you were expanding artistically, you know? It, it wasn't really a play. I mean, it was just, uh, there's, there are set rules for what makes a play, and it wasn't really a play. I mean, I, at the time, didn't understand. Because to me, there was so much crap that was running that I couldn't believe was running, but that was, you know, all this she-she stuff that was being brought in for, from London or whatever, the West End. Um, but a lot of that was just sour grapes, you know. Um, I, I mean, I've written a couple of plays since then, but, uh, you know, one's about stand-up, actually two of them are about stand-up, but, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll do a Zoom reading of them, but I got no desire to bring it to Broadway. It was just something that I wanted to try to do. Um, but I, you know, it's it, it's just a straight play. It's not trying to incorporate, you know, to shoehorn my actor characters into a, a story yeah. about a guy with a midlife crisis and a an absentee father with a you know, difficult relationship. I also want to talk a little bit about, you've had consistent management and a great relationship with your manager for, for years. Mm -hmm. Has, um, which most comics don't. We go from, you know, rep to rep to rep to rep, you know, almost like we go from wife to wife to wife. Um, but you always had the consistency. Has that helped you be able to focus more on being creative? Not having to worry about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I bounce stuff off him all the time. He makes suggestions all the time. Um, you know, he knows me backwards and forwards. I mean, I know him longer. I mean, I've been with him longer than I've been married to my wife. Um, you know, he's been managing me since 1982. And, um, you know, he actually saved my life. I have Crohn's disease, and I had at one time, you'd never know about looking at me now, weighed like 110 pounds and was on stage, I think at Jimmy's Comedy Alley, and I had to sit down because I was so weak and like totally in denial that I was that sick. And uh, 
he came to, to pick me up, to, ostensibly to drive me home, but you know, my suitcase was in the back. He took me to the hospital and did not take no for an answer. So and that was the only way. And they had said that the doctors had said I was literally three, four hours away of just being so septic. I was never going to be, I was never going to see the next day. So, um, so he's, he's a very, very loyal guy, a very, very smart guy, very, very talented guy himself. I mean, he's a brilliant uh, composer and, and musician. Um, you know, he's got a great sense of humor. Um, it just, it just works, you know? Um, yeah. I think it's also, uh, a lot of comics have the same wife for a long, 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 long time, you yeah. know? Um, it just seems, when it's right, you don't want to mess with it. Yep. You know? um, and I, I look back at everything that I've done over my career, and you know, aside from a brief period where I wished I had been Ray Romano, um, I'm not unhappy. You know, I'm pretty happy with what I've been able to do, and and, and you know, no regrets. You know, and continue to come up with stuff that you know. Hopefully, there'll be some more stuff that'll, you know, this podcast thing. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get uh, one of my characters, Benny Benjamin, who's a foreign um, get-rich-quick scheme infomercial guy running for president. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to see if I can get that to go viral. Um, because again, it's just silly. It's not even political. Just silly. Um, yeah. But you know, you got to keep plugging, keep moving. You know, Gary's all about how there's no retirement in show business. So. No. Uh, let's. Uh... I do want to talk about, because I don't think a lot of people understand how much work you do uh, for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and, and helping them raise money and helping them raise awareness. Um, you know, almost every almost every public interview I've seen of you, you know, you've mentioned them in some way as well. And I, you mentioned that you had, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one of your children also suffers from it. Um, and so, you know, what's it like working with an organization like that? And, and how can people contribute if they want to? Um, I do a lot of stuff for charity only because I'm such a very, very lucky man. Very, very fortunate to have the life that I have. And so I really believe that everybody's got a responsibility to do something to make the community better. You know, um, everyone should provides and so I've done you know whenever I could do charity work I would do charity work I mean usually it involves just doing a fundraiser you know being an MC for an event or auctioneer for an event or performing at an event um, that's actually how I got on the Iron show the first time I was I was promoting a, a show I was doing at the at Jimmy's Comedy Alley for the Starlight Foundation which is kind of like one of those make-a-wish charities um, I got <laughs> my gig with the WWF at the time, uh, being one of the first commentators on Monday Night Raw um, by doing a benefit for the Connecticut Special Olympics, which I've been associated with for 30 some odd years. Um, not that I do it to get these career opportunities, because I think those are the only two, but I just think that you really should do some service. And they reached out to me because Imus had made a huge donation uh, when he knew that Devin was, my son Devin was suffering from it. 
living cat, I don't know, eight or ten surgeries. And um, finally, knock wood, he's, he's, he's healthy as a horse, and engaged to be married with an incredible, incredible fiance. Um, you know, just like my daughter, which kind of makes their impending marriage like incest, so I don't know what talk about it. But um, Crohn's colitis, any kind of IBD, um, doesn't get talked about a lot because it's an embarrassing disease. You know, um, when it flares up, depending on how severe it is, you can't be further than 10 feet from a bathroom and it can happen like that. So there were a number of times I had been on stage when I had an accident you try to you know, pretend it didn't happen. And you still have another 30 minutes you have to finish in your act. I mean, stuff like that. And um, so it's got kind of a stigma attached to it. So nobody really talks about it. So because they don't have like, poster children, they, they have a hard time raising money for it, even though it, it's more and more prevalent. I guarantee anybody watching this either has somebody in their immediate family who has it or they know somebody who has it. Um, and, you know, they're doing research and they're, they're getting really close. They're learning new things every day. And um, because they're kind of like an underdog, I, I got involved with them. I just made this huge uh, donation and they learned about Devin and they made him like their spokesperson. They, they, they made like a young person spokesperson every year and they gave him uh, that honor and he you know, became the focus of their fundraising for a year. And uh, they did so much for him that I just decided to do whatever it was I could do for them. And, um, you know, you can check out your uh, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in your area. They're also a great place for information if you have a family member who's suffering from it. Um, they just, you know, they go out of their way to help people, especially kids. They have a camp um, that they uh, send kids to for free for a week. Uh, and they're with other IBD patients, so there's no stigma. Everybody's going through the same thing. And it's the first opportunity they've had most times to go to a camp because they, they don't have to worry about having an accident or being far from a bathroom. So, um, yeah, they're a great source of information and, uh, and, and fun fundraising for research because they really believe that a cure is not that far off. So that's what we keep your fingers crossed for. That's awesome. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I did want to ask you just couple of quick things before I let you go. I got nowhere uh, to go. So unless you have somewhere to go, I'm yours. So. No, well, this is going to be our first four-hour interview then. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I ask all the comics because it's such a hard business. A lot of times we focus on the negative. And I know for me, my journey would not be complete if I didn't have really great comics that saw something in me, reached back, gave me some advice, you know, some structure discipline starting at 19 years old. Uh, I don't know if you uh, remember Barry Berry, but I oh, came on stage and, and Barry was there like, okay, here's how you write jokes, mm -hmm. you know, or mm -hmm. Joe Bolster talking to me about holding for a laugh, you know, while we're sitting at the bar at the comic strip, being a 20 year old kid, not understanding what he was talking about. So it was all the great people that reached back and, and gave me little le lessons that years later, I understand how big they are. Who were the people early on in your career 
that were instrumental in helping you form the basis of your comedy? Um, I guess because when I started, it was really the beginning of the big comedy boom. Mm -hmm. There was really us and, you know, the big headliners, you know, it was Dangerfield and Robert Klein and George Carlin and Pryor and all those people. Uh, and I, when I started out, I didn't, I didn't work in the city. I wasn't, you know, in any of the, any of the clubs, uh, you know, like Catch or, or the comic ship or, or the improv. So I wasn't around some of those people. So I was pretty much on my own. You know, I had influences, uh, people that I patterned myself after, obviously. I mean, uh, a little bit of Pat Cooper and a, a little bit of uh, George Carlin and uh, a little bit of Pryor and a lot of Jonathan Winters, a lot of Jonathan Winters. And um, just kind of learned by watching, but I have been able to kind of pay it forward from, not that they gave me advice, but I learned from them and they gave me inspiration by doing the same for comics who were coming up after me, you know, and um, who have paid it forward. Uh, like our dear, our dear friend Vic Henley, who uh, we tragically lost last month. Um, I had done, you know, I'd worked with Vic, who was the single greatest person to be on the road with, because he was an extraordinary human being, one of the kindest, smartest, gentlest, funniest, fiercely, fiercely funny, brutally funny guys uh, with a heart, you know, bigger than Alabama, where he was from. He, uh, I had got him his first start in New York. I, you know, worked with him on the road and he, I said, you got to come to New York, man. You, you, you should be working in New York. You should be not banging it out at the, the punchlines down south every week. You, you should be getting some TV and some. And uh, he, in turn, did that for every single comic who came up after him. And hopefully they'll do the same. Because that's the only thing we really have. There, there's a lot of cutthroat yeah. stuff in show business, any form of show business. I find it less of a thing with comedians for some reason. I guess because it's probably one of, if not the hardest things to do in show business. Um, it requires a certain kind of a personality, which is usually a dysfunctional personality trait. <laughs> um, but we kind of all share that. And so we all kind of identify with each other's beginnings and what got us into it and whatnot. And so there's a lot of give and take with each other, people yeah. giving me a line or a bit or an idea. It just—it seems to be this much more of a brotherhood among comedians than there are in other professional business. And I think that that's what makes us different. And you know, that's what keeps it going. You know, I—I I see a lot of the guys who are, are popular now. I gotta—you know—I feel like one of these old fart Catskill guys that I used to look at. I don't—I don't get it. I can't. Why is? Why is this funny? Um, it's like when I'm doing a Fort Lauderdale comic strip with Eddie and Dangerfield would go in to try out material. Like Caddyshack had hit and all of a sudden he was huge again. And he uh, was trying out a set and we were all like in awe. Dangerfield was there. And, you know, he came out after destroying the room and he asked me to like give him some feedback about what he had done. It was like, Dangerfield's asking me? 
so that's the kind of you know relationship we have. But anyway, he wanted he wanted Rodney to see him. Um, Rodney, man, you gotta watch my hat. Gotta watch my hat. Gotta watch my hat. But of course, that's time Eddie's Eddie's back was you know chip uh, his fart dick um, motherfucker and but brilliantly funny. Uh, yeah. And so Jake Gibbs watches him, and Eddie comes running out to the to the uh, the bar after the set. And he goes, "What'd you think, man? What'd you think?" And Jake Gibbs goes, "Kid, you're funny, but where you gonna go with it?" <laughs> and a month later, he was on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, yeah with it, Rodney. But anyway, that's the way I feel. I feel the same way. It's like I don't, I don't understand this. It's, it's anti. It's, is is what's funny? The fact that it's not funny. I don't, I don't know. My 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 boys are always laughing at stuff, and I go, why is that funny? And they have to explain it. <laughs> now, since you did give me permission to, to keep you on a little bit longer, I got to ask you about this. You're one of the only comics I know who has a signature bit. The the night before Christmas, you know, if you don't do that, your audience, I think, would grab torches and burn down an establishment if you didn't do it. Did you know when you wrote it, it was going to get that reaction? Because that literally, people lose their mind when you do that bit. That's, you know, the idea behind inspiration or the concept of inspiration is like in the ancient Greek, Greek days and ancient Roman days, it was viewed by the poets and the deep thinkers and playwrights of the time as a gift from the gods. It just came to them, but by way of the gods. And Night Before Christmas was truly a total gift from the gods. It was, it came out of nowhere. It came in a flood all at once, word for word, the way I still do it today. And it wow. happened. I, my son was born, um, my first son was born uh, December 16th, um, you know, nine days before Christmas. And, um, is it nine days? Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, and no, that was anyway. He was born before Christmas, and we were living in Bayside, and he was up late. Uh, you know, we woke up in the middle of the night. He was crying. And I couldn't get him to simmer down. Um, or maybe it was when he was a year. Maybe it was after he was a year. Anyway, whatever it was, he was crying and couldn't go back to sleep. And so I took him into the living room, sat down, and. Read him a story. So I read to him all the time, uh, which I firmly believe is something when you have kids, you got to do. You got to read to them every single day because they, they, they all expunge it. They just absorb it. And the only book I could find in the living room at that moment was a coloring book the night before Christmas. It was the coloring book. So it was around Christmas. So it was either when he was first born or when he was here. And I had started doing Salmonella on Opus. Um, he was a recurring character. He was the first character I created for the show, specifically. Um, it wasn't for my act. It was just something that I decided I was going to do. It kind of evolved out of the Louis Pennebiac kind of guy from my Carvel bit, but 
with somebody, you know, you know, really done for the, the program. And as I'm reading it, I decide I'm going to read it in Sal's voice for whatever reason. Because I used to like to do voices when I would read. I do all the different characters, and he'd respond to it. You know? So I read the night before Christmas, like Salmonella from Brooklyn. And so it was the night before Christmas, uh, in Sheep's Head Bay. Um, the kids was asleep waiting for the big day. Stockings was hung by the furnace. I just started to take each line and turn it into sound. Not just the voice, but what he would say. And I went through the whole thing and then put him back to bed. And I immediately went to write it down. And what I wrote down differed from what I had done with my son, but the basic idea was still there. And it just, paper to pen, it just laid itself out like that. And it exploded. Uh, I did it uh, on the show and the phone in the studio rung off the hook for the week before Christmas. And every time I'm, a, I'm a, we come, watch this, you hear that. NBC, can you do this uh, night before Christmas in Brooklyn? NBC, can you do the night before Christmas? It's every single phone call was for that bet. So it became a perennial. I got to do it on live at five um, that year um, because it becomes so, it's a kind of life of its own. And I guess I kind of knew it was special when I wrote it because it had just just came out, you know, like a, like the way that it was. So it was definitely a third party involved here, a certain third party, you know, God definitely had his hand in that. And it was I, my favorite part about it is that Sal, for all his braggadocio and being kind of like a you know, a tough guy from Brooklyn, he's got a huge heart, which always came through in the bits I would do about him. And, uh, you know, not the brightest guy in the world, but heartfelt, you know, and he basically takes over for Santa because he thinks Santa is, uh, is there to steal his TV, so he knocks Santa out, and Santa can't continue his round, so he has Sal to take over for him. And um, he said, he gave me an offer I couldn't refuse, stop at every house, except for the Jews, and which always gets a big laugh. Um, but that came out of, uh, I said, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, I write for the part. And he told me Santa Claus comes from the heart. It's just this real sweet, sentimental moment. And then it's followed up by, except for the Jews. So it's just enough sentiment to make it Christmas Eve. Then you're back to like, total disregarding any kind of sweetness except for the Jews. You got to pass over them. <laughs> um, and it just, it, it took on a life of its own. You know, it's, it's been very, very good to me over the years. That bit in particular, I, I remember when um, <clears throat> Imus was first suspended for, you know, something that he had said uh, and everyone was there like, well, what are we going to do come Christmas time? It was, it, it was amazing, you know, how that bit is, it's ingrained and it's part of people's zeitgeist. It's part of, you know, if you're of a certain age, that's 
huge part of your childhood. That's a huge part of your, you know, uh, who you are. And so it's got to be refreshing to know that you've touched so many people with, with a bit like that. You know, I, I get every year, I get uh, emails from people or I'll see people and they'll, they'll say how it is literally part of their holiday tradition that, you know, each year a different member of the family gets to read the night before Christmas in Brooklyn, or they'll play one of the CDs, one of my CDs that has it on it. Or some people actually have recordings of me doing it live on IMIS. Um, I think there may even be a recording of the first time I did it on IMIS somewhere. Somebody's got it. Somebody's got air checks. But did it every year for 31 years, even though in the late later years, like the last I guess five years, we were doing a show, I must play it very begrudgingly because he just thought it was just so old and, and you know it's, it's not except for the jews all right we get it you know <laughs> but um yeah it's it's kind of like my billy saul hargis you know, it's, it's, yeah but. all right so uh final question and i ask every comment this question we've got the perception of time on our side what do you wish you knew when you started out that you learned during your journey as a stand-up um, hmm. You know what? I don't know. There's so many. There's <laughs> that I wish I could. <laughs> you know, it's like. That's the most honest answer I've ever heard. How tough it was going to be, I think. I mean, I was stupid when I started. I had no idea how difficult it was going to be to even get up on a stage to, by yourself to, to be funny, to come up with material, to make an audience laugh, and then to try and continue doing it till you can make a living at it, and then make a living at it for an extended period of time. I had no idea. If I had known how much work it was going to be and how success is so so far off <laughs> um, and how it's not guaranteed, you know, unless you persist and a lot of, a lot of them give up, you know, a lot of comments give up in one way or another, you know, some of them just go into another business or go back to the business they were doing before they tried stand up or some of them tragically commit suicide because they just can't do it anymore. And, you know, had I known it was going to be as tough as it was, I never would have done it. I don't think, yeah, I probably would have done it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we all would have. That's that's yeah, the hard part. Yeah, because it's it's having no plan B. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's definitely instrumental in it. I mean, I often t tell people now, if I was starting now, I would. But that's always because it's based on what I know from having done it for so long. Because I think the competition now is so much more. Impossible. I mean, it's comics pay to get on stage now. Where yeah. we were, we were fighting to get clubs to pay us cab fare. To <laughs> um, oh yeah. Again, I was lucky. I came up. We were the first comics. You know that Magnificent Seven with Jackie the Joke Man and Richie Minervini and Bobby and Eddie and me and the late great Bob Woods and, and you know there were seven of us. The Magnificent Seven. We called all the shots because we were it. We were the only one. Yeah, you the ones who started together, and then Richie opened the the East Side Comedy Club, and then it, you know the rest is is history. You know, um, 
amazing, you know. Um, I still miss Woodsy every day. That was a funny, funny man. And again, oh. sweetheart of a guy. That hit us all hard. That was the first guy we lost. Yeah. You know, or at least the first one that any of us had an experience with. Since then, so many comics, near and dear friends, uh, pass away by one way or another. Always tragic. I, I think uh, you'll appreciate the story knowing Woodsy. He got booked last minute to do a gig for Ken Grayson. I don't know if you remember Kenny Grayson. And High school with Ken Grayson, I think. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry, different gig. Uh, so we we uh, both get to the gig, and it was my first headlining weekend ever. And the middle canceled out last minute. Woods was open, and Ken gave Woodsy the middle spot. And I'm there like, no, you got to flip us. And the owner's like, that's not what my sheet says. <laughs> Woodsy's there like, pal, you need to relax. <laughs> You'll be fine. And just all I remember was I had to change outfits in between shows because I was so drenched with sweat from having to follow him. In each show, it was painful. It was baptism by fire. Woodsy had the single greatest laugh of oh. anybody I ever knew. If you could make Woodsy laugh, it was gold. Yeah. He had the greatest laugh. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. Uh, Woods and Dave Hawthorne were um, Dave Hawthorne was a guy who had been in a group in a trio with Billy Crystal. And then Billy went off to become a star and Dave uh, stayed behind. And Dave was a, a huge pot smoker and a, a huge est believer. So And love the word walrus. Love the word walrus. And he, he didn't change his act the entire time I knew him. And apparently it was the same act he'd been doing before I even knew him. Uh, I don't know if he's still doing it. It's probably the same act. Um, but he was always quick to tell people how he could be a star if he wanted to. He would just call Jack Rollins. I can pick up the phone right now and call Jack Rollins because he was our manager. Jack Rollins is the, the famous manager. Yeah. Robin Williams, Woody Allen, and on and on and on. And, and, and he'd put me on, he'd get me on tonight or tomorrow. Pick up the phone and make a call. So, Woodsy and Hawthorne and Eddie Murphy get booked in uh, a Catskill hotel for a gig, a one nighter. It's at Fire Tux in the Catskills. And so they drive in Hawthorne's, he had Nova. They drive in a plan, but it's, of course, it's every comic's car was a total beat, shit, piece of shit. And so, all right, no, Nova in Spanish is Nova, which means won't go. So he, they drive up the, uh, the Catskills, and Eddie's best friend, Clint Smith, used to go with him to all the gigs. Clint was probably funnier than Eddie. Um, they'd been pals since they were really little, and they were a great team together. Um, he never really wanted to be in, in, in show business, although Eddie used him in a couple of movies and TV shows he did. Um, so they're listening, you know, they're sitting in the back, Woods and Hawthorne are sitting in the front. Of course, there was like the, to, you should be like a, a bus pan filled with beer in the front, which of course, you know, Woods would be drinking as they were driving. And um, they go to fire trucks and it's a disaster. It's a total disaster because, you know, um, Hawthorne is doing these esoteric bits like Yeats Keats and, uh, making all these obscure references and 
you know, a poem about pot smoking. And it's like all these old, you know, Althacacus just kind of looking at the stage. And so, of course, they're licking their wounds as they're leaving. And he's doing his, you know, pussy fart, you know, motherfucker bit. And uh, Woodsy, I think, probably got a few laughs, if not anything else, but for the, because he was the great impressionist for his honeymoon. So, yeah. but they're driving home. And of course, Woodsy's laughing, you know, because Woodsy just thought everything was funny. And the muffler falls off. We're on Route 17. It's like three o'clock in the morning. The muffler falls off. So they get out and they're trying to, there was a coat hanger in the trunk. They're trying to use a coat hanger. Woodsy's standing watching Hawthorne and they eat the car. And, and Eddie and Clint are still in the car. They're still in the back seat. And Hawthorne's uh, on the car. Woodsy's standing there with a can of beer and he's watching. He's pointing. Hawthorne trying to, and then cars or trucks are whizzing by on 17. And uh, Eddie, it's either Eddie or Clint, poke their heads out of the window and go, better make that call, Dave. Make that call. <laughs> and they wouldn't get out of the car. I think, as the legend has it, Woodsy collapsed laughing and laughed the entire way home to Long Island from the Catskills. Just, that to him was just, and he, he told that story to everybody. It was just the greatest story ever. Just the greatest. That's, that's great. Uh, Rob, this has been so much fun. Hopefully you'll come back again and do it uh, another time. Part two of the conversation. I would love to. It's just a lot of fun. You know, it's it's great seeing you again <laughs> these years, and uh, and I'm very proud of all that you've accomplished since then. Oh. And you you're uh, you've been quite the busy little beaver since 1407. <laughs> well, so, you know, it's uh, it, that's what we do. We keep going. But uh, I hope when this pandemic is over, I actually get to work with you again someday. I would like that. I would really like that a lot. That's the thing when you talk to somebody who loves comedy, you can talk forever. Uh, it's clear that Rob loves every aspect of it, from the performing to the creating to the reaction from you, the audience. That's what comedy is about the sheer joy of connecting with the audience. It's, it's fun to hear somebody who's been doing this so long and is so storied and, and, you know, so revered in the industry, still has that love, um, and still, you know, loves doing it. Uh, even even at times when we don't understand the next generation, um, Rob Bartlett is amazingly open, and his dedication to paying it forward and, and to being there for the next generation—that's what this is all about. Uh, on behalf of Rob and myself and everyone here at the Comedy Legacy Series and the fine folks at New Media Comedy. Uh, just reminding you that next Monday there will be another episode dropping on our YouTube channel. And uh, if you want to catch all the old episodes, you can go there or wherever you get your podcasts from iTunes to Spotify and beyond. Just go, give us a review, leave us a, leave us a rating. We appreciate that. Uh, until next time, everybody, I'm Jim Andrino's Stay funny.
This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.